What I want to share this morning is, is one other aspect of the way in which we can enrich and enhance our own time alone with the Lord, especially our prayer time when we meet alone with Him. And again, uh, the leaders and the elders of Grace Bible Church will consider BUILD to be successful if the men leave BUILD with a stronger desire to meet alone with the Lord over His Word and in prayer, and then to take the fruit of that into our, our homes, whatever that looks like, and then to take the fruit of that into the service at this church. What I want to share this morning is something that we can see about Christ and how He truly is superior to everything else. So we're going to we're going to go through three or four different places in Hebrews. I'll just mention them, but we're going to focus at the end of chapter 2. But we're going to start in chapter 1 and we're going to see how Christ is a better prophet. And we're going to see that in chapter 1 verse 1. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. So the author is telling his, le- his readers, his listening audience, that in the past, in the Old Testament, God spoke to us through the prophets. And those prophets spoke God's word. The, the words that they spoke to the people of Israel were verbatim what God told them to say. They spoke exactly what God said to them. So the words themselves were perfect. But Christ, when he comes, the author says, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, And then he gives us some attributes of Christ that the Old Testament prophets don't have. He's heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. When Christ was speaking, he was also speaking the words of God. You read your Gospels and you you read in John's Gospel that Jesus says, I speak what the Father gave me to speak, what he sent me to speak. The difference between Christ and the Old Testament prophets was that Christ was speaking as one who had authority because of who he was the one who is heir of all things, the one through whom God made the world, um, the one who was God. And so we see at the beginning of Hebrews that Jesus was a better prophet. If you go to the end of Hebrews chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus has a more exalted position than the angels. At the very end of this, uh, in verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer there is none. And so Jesus not only is a better prophet, he also has a more exalted position than the angels. If you go to chapter 3, you find out that that Jesus has more glory that is due to him than Moses. And in Israel, the people of Israel had a very high esteem and regard for Moses. And the author makes the point that Jesus surpasses Moses, no problem. And you go on to chapter 7, you see that Jesus is a better high priest. And he's a high priest, he's a better high priest, and he's a better high priest of a better covenant. So the the high priests, they lived and they lived and they offered sacrifices year after year. Jesus came and he offered one sacrifice. And he had a better covenant because this was a covenant that was inaugurated in his own blood. And so Jesus has a, a more exceeding, more high position than the Old Testament prophets, than the angels, than Moses, better covenant, better high priest, he's exceeding in all of these things, and the superlatives can't describe how far ahead he is in all of these things. And the reason why that's meaningful to us, I want us to go to the end of chapter 2, and we want to see that that Christ has a unity with us. This same Christ who is better in all of those aspects, in all of those regards, than everything that the the Old Testament Jew really, really esteemed, 
Um, that Jesus is one with us. And I want us to see that starting in verse 10 of chapter 2. And this will have bearing on us when we, when we have our Bibles open and we, when we're praying, we're thinking about who Christ is. Verse 10 says, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things to bring many sons to, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. I'm going to read that again, replacing the pronouns. It was fitting for the Father for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing us to glory to perfect Jesus through suffering. So the Father had a plan for us being brought to glory by the suffering of his own Son. But then you see, um, in verse 11, you see the unity that's starting to form between Christ and those for whom he suffered. For both he sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So the Son, Jesus Christ, and the believers that he purchased at the end of, or in the middle of verse 11 are all from one Father. And then Jesus proclaims here, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So you have the picture of Jesus being together in the midst of those whom he saves. And then he says at the end of verse 13, I and the children whom God has given me. So these are the ones that God has chosen. God has used Christ to save. Christ is in the midst of them. So the focus for us starts in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we share in flesh and blood with Christ. He was, he was a man. He took on human flesh the same way that we, we have. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus entered into this world and took on human flesh. He became one of us. If he was sitting in a chair with us today, physically he would look a lot like us. He would look pretty much like us because he was born of a woman. But we see what he came here for in the middle of verse 14, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So this same Savior that is so exceeding of the Old Testament prophets and the angels and a better covenant and Moses and the priest from the Old Testament, he exceeds all of them. He's one with us. He has identity with us. And he took on that identity so he might render Satan powerless in our lives. He might remove the, the power of Satan over us so that we can now walk in newness of life. You see in verse 17, um, sorry, verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels. They don't need help because they're not sinful fallen beings the way that we are. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And there the author is not referring to ethnic Israel. He's referring to spiritual Israel because not all Israel is Israel. He's referring to those who are followers of Christ. And Christ gives help to them. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of all people. It just really helps us when we see these, these two extremes. We see on, on one hand, the superiority of Jesus. Everything else is inferior to him. And those things that are inferior to him are really, really good things. But they're, they fall far short of who Christ really is. So on one hand, you have this, this massive, impressive Christ. And on the other hand, he's one with us. He condescended to be with us. 
and be among us so that he could render Satan powerless in our lives. And that's encouraging to us. And I hope that's encouraging to you guys when you sit down and you pray, you close your eyes and you're thinking about, okay, what, why am I here again? We are here because we want to be pleasing to the Lord. And one way to do that is remembering Christ for who he is. So I hope that's encouraging to you guys as you spend time preparing your heart for your reading, as you spend time in prayer. Maybe that's something else that you can add to your list of things that you can remember and recall on some kind of regular basis to remember who Christ is and to remember his right identity as you, you sit alone with God in, in, your, in his word. So be encouraged by that and uh, pray that the Lord will use that to enrich and deepen you and then the, the fruit of that would flow out into your household and, and then it would circle back to this, this church. All right, we're going to be talking about Discipline 5, Hermeneutic, Honoring the Lord in our Bible reading. I'm going to start with a question. And the question is this. Have you ever had your words misconstrued or misunderstood? Perhaps it was by a friend or by an authority figure or even somebody within this church. And you've been quoted by someone as having said something. And you say, that's not at all what I said. That's not at all what I meant. Um, You had a message and you communicated consistent with that message. And your words were misconstrued. You ever had that? Yeah. Um, sometimes the consequences of that can be pretty significant. Uh, they can be pretty dire. Um, if this is how we feel when people do that with our words, then shouldn't we be careful with how we deal with God's words? Today we're going to look at how we can honor the Lord when our Bibles are open and we are alone with God. But one of the most important steps we can take is to prepare our hearts for the intake of his word. Uh, so heart preparation is really essential because it's only a soft and tender and well-informed heart that is prepared to receive the truth of what we read. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about four things that help us prepare ourselves for reading the Word. And then we're going to talk about some principles that relate to reading the Word. And uh, if there are other ways that you prepare to read God's Word and that work really well for you, that is a blessing. That is true. Continue to do those things and, and excel and run hard after those things. These are things that that are principles from God's word that would just help us in addition. So keep these in front of you. And what we want to do today is we want to look at four things that help us prepare our heart for reading with God's word. And the first is to agree with God about his nature. God is revealing himself to us in scripture. And so it's helpful for us to agree with him about his nature. So whether you're starting your day or ending your day, uh, reading your Bible uh, at some point in the middle of your day, it's important that you do a couple of things. You keep a couple of things in front of you when you're reading your Bible, and that is that you remember God's holiness. And we see that in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And this is the singular most defining characteristic of God's, and that is his holiness. And it relates to his difference, his otherness. Um, and the scene here in Revelation chapter 4 is God's throne room in heaven. And you have these four living creatures. And these living creatures are highly perceptive, and they're highly intelligent, and they can perceive, and they can understand all things. They're without sin. They're not compromised in any way by sin. And this is what they say. This is what they say about God. Uh, they're way beyond us with their capacities and their abilities. And they say, uh, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord the Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. So they say, holy, holy, holy. 
And the repetition there is it's instructive to us. And what that means is that God is exceedingly holy. That's how emphasis is used. And God's holiness, again, relates to his separateness from us. And, and God is separate from us in, in so many ways. And I'm just going to list a few of them just to give us a picture of how God is, is separate from us. He's separate from us in his moral purity. Uh, we all know that we're compromised that way. and God is not. Um, God is separate from us in his being. He has always existed. And uh, we all had a starting point. And on this earth, we're going to have an ending point. Or we will continue forever. But we had a starting point. God never did. Uh, God is separate from us in his power and his wisdom and his vengeance, and his mercy, his kindness and his love. And, and you can make a list that goes much longer than that. But in all of those ways, God is, is different from us. And, and the reason why that's important is that we need to agree with God that he is really set apart from us and that his ways are so different from ours. We have no hope of comprehending his communication to us without his help. Uh, he is that different from us that we can't comprehend him on our own. So we must say, Father, I desperately need your help understanding and comprehending and coming to grips with who you are. I need your help in this. So please help me in my time alone with you. <clears throat> so we want to remember God's holiness and then we want to remember God's glory. I love Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day brings forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You know, God's glory is speaking about his impressiveness. And in the Old Testament, the idea of, of glory has to do with God's weightiness and his substance and his mass and his size, everything like that. When you read about the, God's glory in the New Testament, it's, it's he is shining, he is bright, and he's radiant and all of these things so taken together you have this this sum that is just really really impressive and uh, God is really impressive he's weighty and so the words that God is, is putting forth they carry that same weight because they represent and they, they show us his character so it's not a trifling thing to read the words of this God that, that is so glorious and so we need to be telling ourselves, Lord, grant me the appropriate sobriety when I'm reading your word, because I'm dealing with a God who is just beyond me in his substance, in his nature, his brilliance, his majesty, and all of those things. So it's really helpful to agree with God about his nature. And then secondly, it's really helpful to agree with God about his word. Agree with God about the benefits that his word will bring to you. I love John 17, 17. This is a great verse. It's, it's really great because it's a short verse. If you want to add one more verse to your list of Bible verses you've memorized and you want to get there quickly, add John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is Jesus praying his, for his disciples. and He's praying just hours before his crucifixion. And uh, he is praying that they would be sanctified. And Jesus is telling us with his own words how it is that we're going to be sanctified. We're going to be sanctified... Um, with the truth of his word. We're going to be sanctified with truth, and that truth is found in God's word. And so agree with God that when I read your word, Lord, it is going to have a sanctifying effect. Position me under your word so that I'm ready to be sanctified by your word. Something else about God's word that we, we need to do that tells us about uh, what his word does for us is found in Hebrews chapter 4. If I didn't list that on the on the outline, you need to just make note of that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we know this. The word of God is four things. 
It's living and it's active and it's sharp. And in that sharpness, it penetrates deep into us. And then fourthly, it judges the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And so the message there is that um, God is talking to, in the context there, he's talking through the, the author of Hebrews. He's saying, the Jews will be unable in, to enter into God's rest due to their disobedience and their unbelief. And the message for us is that um, we need to actually recognize that we're the kind of people who would wander and we need God's word to speak into us because we need its sharpness, we need its, its aliveness, we need its living nature. Um, we need God's word to tell us what is true about us because we are so inclined to run away from that. The last part of that, again, is it judges the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. So God, please use your word to reveal to me the areas of my life where my thoughts and my intentions are not pleasing to you. So it's good to agree with God about his nature and about his word. It's really helpful to agree with God about our own nature. This is really helpful because it, it helps us understand how we need to approach God when we understand our former condition. And, and we all know where to go to look at our former condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is really helpful. Where Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and, and he's writing a really deep, profound, robust, thick theology with these people because he pastored them for three years. So they sat under his teaching for a long time, and so he can, he can speak at great depth with them. And he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked, according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So it's just really good to remember that I used to be that kind of person where it was a very active rebellion against God, that I was walking, um, and I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and I was walking in them. And I was walking in a way that looked just like everybody else. In fact, the passage goes on, and it said, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Whether you had a childhood conversion or you had a conversion at age 75, uh, we walked in the lusts of our flesh. And we indulged the desires of the flesh and the mind, you can see that in little children, can't you? Um, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. We were just like everybody else. What that does is that gives us a humility before God when we've got his word. Lord, you saved me and you were merciful and you were kind and you are revealing yourself to me this morning as I read your word. And the point here is, is not to embarrass yourself before God. It's not to sit there and say, oh, this is how horrible I am. But, but the point here is to remind you of the power that God brought forth to take you out of that life and bring you into a relationship with him. And what that does is that gives us this kind of gratitude that we would never have otherwise. So it's good to have something like that in our mind where we remember our former condition that just promotes a worship and a thankfulness to God that we would not otherwise have. But it's really helpful for us not only to remember our, our former condition, but to remember our current condition. And if you remember our blue pamphlet that we, have the, we had at the beginning of the, the year, God's Transformation of Man, over here on this side you have man in his sinful, unmixed condition. And over here you have man in his sinless, unmixed condition, the eternal man. What we have in this world for the believer is the mixed condition. And it's really helpful for us to remember that. And in Galatians 5, verse 17 tells us all about this. I need to remember this all the time. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are in opposition to one another so that you don't do what you please. So it's good for me to remember that my flesh is the residual sin that still lurks within the Christian. 
And it's sin that has been with me this morning, just like it was when I first came to Christ 42 years ago. And it's opposed to the work of the Holy Spirit within me. And it's good for me to remember that as I sit before God with his Bible, my Bible open. And I need to just really actually acknowledge before God that there is a battle that is taking place within me. That my flesh is opposing the spirit, even in this time where I've got your, your word open in front of me. Uh, either because I, I know I need to get going with my day or I've got these other things or my mind is somewhere else or I'm harboring bitterness over something. My flesh is opposed to the spirit which is working in me. So Lord, help me. Help me to respond rightly to that. And the way that really is really helpful in this is Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 talks about the new relationship that the believer has with sin because of the work of Christ. And verse 4 tells us in Romans 6 that that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we have the ability to walk in newness of life. So the idea there is that Christ's resurrection from the dead, which we believe in, and we know everybody would check that box and say, "I, I really believe that. That is what gives us the ability to walk in newness of life. So whatever it is that's opposing the Spirit's work within us, whatever our flesh is bringing that day, we have the ability to walk away from that in newness of life that we never did before. So Lord, help me use this time in your word and fortify me with the truth, the truth that um, would influence me away from the sin that still appeals to me today. So it's really helpful for me to to remember those things. It's really helpful for that. But we need to remember, fourthly, our purpose for reading the Bible. Um, This is something that's really helpful for us to remember, especially if you're on a reading plan. Um, You've got those boxes you need to check because you you checked all the ones that needed to be checked yesterday and were on today, so let's check those boxes and do the readings. But it's important to remember the real reason why you do anything is to bring glory to God, and that includes the reason why you read your Bible. And for that, it's going to be good for us to turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's writing from prison. And he is going to be giving them a long list of things that are good for believers to do and that he's praying for, that he sees in them, that he comes to know about in them. And we're going to see where it all ends up at the end of his his prayer request. He says in Philippians 1.9, I pray this, that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So he's praying that they would be discerning because of the love that's in them. He's praying that They would approve the things that are excellent. That they'd be able to look at things that are excellent and say, yeah, that's excellent. I want to run after that. So that I would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. I want to keep doing this moving forward. I don't want this to be a one-off. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. I have righteousness that's been imputed into me because of the faith that God gave me. All the things, these things are truths that are, that are essential for us. But he says, to the glory and the praise of God. So all of these things, the discernment that they need, the approving of the things that are excellent so that they can be sincere and blameless, all of these things are things that we're to do to be filled and being filled with the fruit of righteousness. The passage ends by telling us we do this to the glory of God. And the overarching, that is the overarching purpose of our life. And that is the overarching purpose of our life when we read our Bibles as well. So God, grant me grace in the reading of Scripture, in my time alone in prayer, to be a reading that informs me as to what is right and good 
to be done for your glory. I, I don't want to do this to grow my skill and my ability with your word. My time in Bible reading is, is to be a time of worship. It's not to be a time primarily where I, I sharpen my theological positions. It's not to be a time where I, I gain arguments for or points that I need to share with the guy that I'm sharing at work. All of those things are good. But our primary focus is to be bringing glory to the Lord as we read our Bibles. So we need to run hard after all the other things that you, you get from reading your Bible. But your purpose in doing that is to bring glory to the Lord. So Lord, help me to do that by using self-control when I read your Bible. Help me to have self-control when I read my Bible. So God, give me the grace I need to do that. So our purpose is to bring glory to God. And, and there's a secondary purpose which is different. It sounds similar, but it's different. And that is to be pleasing to Christ. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I'm going to take my first official time out while you guys are turning to 2 Corinthians. Okay. So we want to be pleasing to the Lord. <clears throat> so I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> we are of good courage, I say, and we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So whether we're already in heaven or whether we're still here we want to be pleasing to, to the lord so christians are looking forward to being absent from this body and at home with the lord in heaven uh, but paul is referring here to the fellowship the christian enters into christ with after they leave this world but the one we're we are to be pleasing to is jesus so we think when we say jesus your father has made me one of your sheep jesus you are my master you are my lord you are my shepherd um, it's not just how I respond to my Bible after reading it that has bearing on what kind of sheep I am, but my disposition while I'm reading my Bible has bearing on what kind of sheep I am. And there's two words I want to put in front of you that have been very helpful to me as I, as I think about being pleasing to my Savior as I read my Bible. And those two words, they rhyme. One of them is dwell, and one of them is swell. Dwell and swell. You know, when you're reading your Bible, it, it won't take you long to come across a passage that addresses an area of sin that a brother or a sister in Christ has. Um, and it won't take you long to come across an area where you've been growing lately or you're doing pretty well because you've actually been praying about it. You've been working on it. So, Lord, help me when I come across one of those passages where there's a brother of mine who is struggling. Help me not to dwell on the sin of that man. Help me to read that rightly. To not forget that, but to know how to respond to that in a way that's not dwelling on the sin of another. And Lord, when I come across a passage that describes an area where I've seen some growth in my own life, help me to remember that I still have 10 miles to go in that area. Help me not to swell with pride over what I've done. So those are things that are helpful. The point in all of that is to prepare your heart for meeting alone with the Lord so that when you read it, your time is fruitful, it's helpful, it's nourishing to your heart. A lot of that has to do with remembering what's true about God and his word, and a lot of it has to do with remembering what's true about you and why you're reading his word. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to look at several different ways to use self-control while you're reading your Bible. Self-control is really important to us in a lot of areas, and it's very important when we read our Bibles. The first is to expect a single meaning in a passage. And to, to get a picture of this, just ask yourself, when was the last time you communicated so as not to be understood? Or you said something to be intentionally vague and unclear? When was the last time you, you said something where you had two equally valid meanings with your sentence? Have you done any of that this morning in our sharing, in our groups, or in your, your fellowship beforehand? Let's say you have three kids, and they're all right there in front of you. Let's say they're all right there in front of you and you have a chance to give them a clear instruction. Would you consider it reasonable if each one of your three kids came to their own conclusion about what you meant? How well would your household be functioning if things worked that way? It wouldn't function very well at all, right? Same thing happens in in the church. Language is God's gift to us, and God gave language to us to enable us to to communicate clearly with one another. And what we need to see here is that clear communication flows out of God's character. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 45 to see that. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 45. And just keep in mind the idea that God is full of clarity whenever he speaks. In the Isaiah 40s, God is preparing Isaiah. He's telling him what is to come. He's telling him how much more worthy he is of praise than anybody else. And he's telling him things in this particular chapter about his communication. God is describing through Isaiah to Israel things about his own communication. And he says, starting in verse 18, For thus says Yahweh, I am Yahweh, and there is no one else. Verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land, and I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a wasteland. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So the one thing that sets God apart from everything else is his communication, and we see it in verse 19. He speaks righteousness. And something that is righteous is something that is right. And because it's right, it's without, it's without error, it's without omission, It is perfect. And that is what God's communication is like. When he speaks, he speaks in that way. And one characteristic of righteous speech is that it's clear. Righteous speech is in no way confusing and vague and uncertain. When God communicates, he communicates clearly. And so God is telling us something. He's saying, my communication is righteous. There is nothing missing. There is nothing confusing in my communication. So when I speak, I have one meaning. So what we need to say today is that clear communication flows out of God's holy character because God is holy, his communication is clear. If there's, if there's a problem in understanding the passage that we're reading, uh, the problem is not with the communicator, it's with the reader. It's with us. The problem is on our end. The problem relates to our inability to fully comprehend the words and the thoughts and the meaning of a holy God. We can go pretty far with, with good study and everything else. But any challenge that we have in understanding God's word is on our end. It's not on God. Second thing we want to see about God is that clear communication is essential for obedience. And this is really important too. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. 
We're going to look at verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And, and this is a passage that a lot of people look at and they, they dwell on the front end of this passage because it talks about the secret things that belong to the Lord our God. And it's good to know those things. It's important to know those things. But what we're talking about here that relates to communication is what we see at the second half of the verse. It says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. So God has this, this arena of things that belong to him. And he's not going to share those things because they belong to him. They're, they're not for us. But in the back half of the sentence, we see what is for us. But the things revealed, the things that God puts in front of us, those things belong to us and to our sons forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. And it's good for us to get this. The focus today is on the things that are at the back end of this verse. The things that reveal, the things that are revealed belong to us so that we may follow them. God communicated his law to Israel and he expected Israel to obey him. And the expectation he put on them was to obey him. And that demanded that his communication be clear. You can't obey something that is not clear. And so when God has instructions that he has for people to obey, the communication that he puts forth that, that requires that, that itself is clear. So the reason that God can expect obedience from us is because the meaning of the words that he's given to us in his instructions, in his commands, is clear. So when you're reading a passage in your Bible, use self-control and remember that a passage has one and only one meaning. That's really helpful. If you can remember that, that's going to take you an awful long way. The second principle we want to look at today is, is stick to the normal meaning of words. Hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Read your Bible with a literal, grammatical, historical perspective. Literally, take the words at their literal meaning unless the situation demands it. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Taking literally, that means that the Word existed in the beginning, the Word existed together with God, and the Word was God. There's a lot behind that, but God is being very clear and He's being very literal about all of this. God's identifying Himself as a communicating God by virtue of His name. John 1.14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was a huge problem in the first century church. There were many belief systems surrounding the first century church together with the first century church, infiltrating the first century church that said Jesus did not appear in the flesh. John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh. And he didn't become flesh on Mars. He dwelt among us. The normal reading of this leads us to conclude that the Word took on human form and lived here together with mankind. John 10.9 is, is the use of a metaphor. But we'll see that even in the use of a metaphor, the normal meaning of what a, a metaphor stands for is very helpful. Jesus says in John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go out and in and find pasture. And here Jesus is describing himself by mentioning a door. But the literal meaning of a door helps us understand that Jesus is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So we want to read our Bible as literally as we can, as often as the, the occasion demands it. 
But we also want to use good grammar when we read our Bibles, and grammar is really, really helpful. I think we've looked at this maybe once before this year, and it's in Ephesians 4. So it's really helpful to turn to Ephesians 4, and we'll actually see that. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 16 together. And here, Paul is talking about how the church functions. Just prior to that, he's talking about the the use of the apostles and the prophets and and what they're there for and their teaching and how they equip. And here it talks about how the body is going to function together. And we're going to see this. And and he starts in verse 14. Again, Paul's writing to the church that's very well-versed. They're very familiar, so he can talk at depth with them. And he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of people, craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We're going to look at how, this, how grammar helps us with this. Paul is is good at using big, giant sentences. This paragraph is actually just one sentence, and it's got lots of words in it, but grammar really helps us. In verse 14, we we read that we are no longer to be children tossed about and deceitful scheming. It describes what kind of people we are to be. We're no longer to be children. We're not to be thinking the way that children think. Verse 15 helps us understand a little bit more. It helps us understand what we are to be. We are to grow up into him, speaking the truth in love. So the thrust of verse 15 talks about what we do do. We grow up into him, speaking the truth in love, who grow up in all aspects into Christ. So we have what we're not to do, what we are to do, and then verse 16 tells us how that actually happens. So the last word at the end of verse 15 is Christ. And so the first couple of words in verse 16, from whom, is referring back to Christ. And we see from whom the whole body, and then you see a comma, and you see lots of words that come after that. And then you see uh, another comma right at the end that's before the word causes. So when you read this, you see the whole body, and then skip what's in the middle there for a minute. Then you see causes the growth of the body. Good grammar and good use of grammar helps you understand that the body causes the growth of the body. And all the words in between tell you how. They tell you that the body causes the growth of the body when the parts are fitted together and held together and when each part is functioning according to its design, according to its proper work. And so just a little bit of focus on grammar helps us understand how to take apart a big giant sentence like that and get some meaning. And we understand that the purpose at the end of all of this is for the building up of itself in love. So we can't lose that sight of that. So by using decent rules of grammar and trying to get a good grasp on it, then we can understand what God's heart is. And this is not to say that we need to be a nerd about our grammar, but it's just to say that this is how God has chosen to communicate with us. And so if we can pay attention to it and think our way through it and ask him for his help to do that, it's very helpful to us. And the last way we need to read our Bible is historical. We live here in 2023. If you're in your Bible reading plan and you're in the book of Jonah, it's very helpful to not try to import the way we think and what our experience is here in Tempe in 2023 into Jonah's time frame. It's important to know that Jonah was written during a time of relative prosperity in the northern kingdom. That Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, not to the southern kingdom of Judah. 
But in that northern kingdom, they had recently been experiencing a relative degree of prosperity. And this was on the heels of lengthy oppression by the Assyrians. So that helps you understand why Jonah is a little bit hostile to the idea of going to Assyria and to Nineveh and declaring to them the good news of the gospel. These are the people that just oppressed us. And we're doing pretty well now, so we don't need them. Actually, they need you. So this helps us understand some of that. Just helping you understand the the historical context is very helpful sometimes. So use good grammar when you read your Bible. Read your Bible literally. Consider history when you're reading your Bible. And thirdly, observe your passage before you interpret it. So often we read a Bible verse or we read a passage and we say, well, what does this mean? And we, we try to dive into what it really means. And it's really helpful and really important to just make observations first. 90% of the work is just by observation. You can get a whole long way when you just observe. So observe some things. Look at the placement of your book in the Bible. Where does this stand? Why is this located where it is? Where does this come? What kind of book am I reading here? Am I reading a narrative? Am I reading history? Am I reading poetry? Am I reading a letter to a person? Or am I reading a letter to a church? That has bearing on what I'm doing. Um, And you can look at the pieces of the book you're reading. You've got a passage you're trying to understand the meaning of, but that passage fits within the flow of a book that's either a narrative or wisdom or It's a letter that Paul is writing to a person or to a church or to a a people group. And it's really, really helpful. In Romans, you're reading Romans and you're trying to figure out a a Bible verse and what it means in Romans chapter 7. It's just helpful to know that in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about a Christian's new relationship to sin. And in chapter 7, he's talking about his new relationship to the law. And in chapter 8, he talks about how the Spirit works in those things. So you can see a flow and that just helps you understand what is going on at the beginning of Romans 7 and what is going on at the end. Make observations. Answer six simple questions, five W's and an H. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Those don't tell you everything about what a passage means, but that helps you understand what is going on so that you can understand what it means. Who is doing the speaking? Who is the audience? Is there an instruction that needs to be obeyed? Whatever else, what happened? How does this relate to the things around it? Who is this person? What is being said about this person? Those are very, very helpful. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Really, really helpful. So observe, observe, observe. Understand the pieces before you try to understand what the pieces mean. A fourth way to use self-control when you read your Bible is to understand the difference between interpretation and the application. You've got all of your pieces that you put together by observing. You're reading and you're you're seeing a lot of good things. You're observing some good things. Now you're understanding what it means. But understand that there there is one right meaning because the author intended one meaning. And the way that the analogy is given is that interpretation and application are like two runners in a relay race. You do your interpretation and there is one meaning. And then you hand off the baton, and that's where the application begins. And there are many different ways that you can apply that to your life. And there are many different ways that different men would apply that same principle to their own life. So there's one correct interpretation and many applications. But don't run to the application before you've done the hard work of observing 
all the pieces and then trying to understand what those pieces mean. Staying in your passage as long as you can before you go somewhere else. Just think carefully about what a passage means. If you wanted somebody to understand what you had just said and if you gave a, a five-minute speech somewhere, you would want people to stay within your speech first before they went to what you said last week or last month. So stay within your passage as long as you can and then go to other things that that same author has said and then go beyond that. So work outward in concentric circles, but the, the smallest circle is the one you want to spend the most time in and that's right where you are with making lots of good observations. So we talked about understanding the difference between interpretation and application. And, and fifthly, entrust yourself to God's wisdom. And this is more about how you respond to what you read. Um, this is especially true for young believers, but it's true for all of us because we can read something and we can, we can look at it and we can be tempted to respond to it in a very sinful way. And so what we need to remember is that God's wisdom is above my own wisdom. So let's turn to Isaiah 55 and look at verse 8. God tells us there is something that's really, really helpful about him. And it's important for us to know this, and that is that his thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. So he's completely different from us in all of these things. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. So the way that you think and the way that you function is different than me. I'm different from you. I'm apart from you. I'm holy. So it's not our place when we read something to allow our motions to rule over um, our assessment of God's word. Instead, we need to allow God's word to be the guide on our emotions. It's not our place to say, well, that might be okay for some people to obey that instruction, but that doesn't work for my house. That doesn't work for my situation. Instead, we need to agree with God's way that his ways are higher than ours. And say, Lord, give me the wisdom to how to apply this in my situation. I need wisdom because my mind runs to, I can't do that. I need your wisdom to help me. So the first thing is we need to um, remember that God's wisdom is above ours. But then we also need to remember uh, in this that, that God looks to the one who trembles at his word. Um, something that I, I really had looked over and looked past for probably the first 35 years of my Christian life. There's a couple of verses at the beginning of Isaiah 66. This is really, really helpful. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 66. And in verse 1, God is describing how impressive he is. He is saying, I am the creator. Uh, heaven is my throne room and the earth is my footstool. You can't build a place for me to rest. You can't give me anything that I need. I don't have needs from you. Again, I am holy. I'm separate from you. I'm beyond you. My hand made all of these things in verse 2. Thus all of these things came into being. They came into being because I put them into being. You came into being because I put you into being. So I'm really impressive and you're not. You're my footstool. But then he says, but to this one I will look. This is the person that God looks to. God looks to the person who has two characteristics about them. The first is that they're humble. They're humble. And the second is that they tremble at his word. And you can't have one without the other. You will never tremble at God's word unless you are humble. And trembling under God's word will make you more humble. So remember that. The one to whom God looks is, is not the one who is quick to assert themselves and assert their own rule and say, well, that doesn't work for me. But it's the one who is humble under God's word. And God's words are timeless and they're true. The issue with us is to figure out how to apply that to our life. So we need to also trust in the sufficiency of God's word 
that God's word is sufficient. What this means is we need to start with God's word. We need to build our principles on what is contained in God's word. We can use other wisdom outside of God's word. It's really, really good. But we want to make sure that we use that as additive, not as foundational to what we believe. Go to Second Peter chapter 1, and this is especially important in our world today. Our world today doesn't have a system of absolute authority, but God tells us here in Second Peter chapter 1 that we can. God's word is sufficient. His divine power has granted to us everything we need for two things. We need for life and for godliness. So his divine power has granted that to us. And this is where the word comes in at the back end of this verse. Through the true knowledge of him who called us. Well, how do we know God? We know God by his revelation of himself and his word. So we have everything we need by the way that God has revealed himself and his own nature and his commands and his instructions and his word. So we can have confidence that scripture itself is sufficient to give us everything we need. And yes, we need counsel from others. We can read other books by really godly guys, good guys. Women read great books by good guys, by good women. Parenting books, books on finance. They're really, really good. All of those are additive that go along with the foundation that you build with the principles from God's word. So start with God's word and trust in the sufficiency of it. What you find in, in, in the broken world around us is a rejection that God's word itself is sufficient. And they start with everything else, even in the church, that is additive. And then they try and somehow fit the foundation in somewhere in the cracks and everything else. And it just doesn't work. So don't look somewhere else first. God has given you everything right here in his word. In particular, do not look to psychology first. There are aspects of psychology that are very good that tell you how the human brain works how the body works together with the mind. Those are good. But to use that as an explanation for sin or as a justification for sin, you don't want to start there. You want to start with God's word. That is where you find the help that you need to repent from sin, to reconcile a friendship, to grow your affections from God. You find all of those in the word. So trust in the sufficiency of scripture. And then read the full counsel of scripture. Um, we're going to go to Second Timothy chapter 3. We all know what chapter 3 verse 16 says. The word of God is useful for four things. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But it actually says there that all scripture. So we're going to put our eyes on how it is that Paul writes in verse 16, all scripture. So let's go back to verse 10. And remember that Paul is writing here to Timothy. Timothy traveled with Paul. Timothy met Paul and Paul took him with him on some of his missionary travels. And during that time, Paul observed, sorry, Timothy observed Paul. He observed him ministering and preaching and teaching, and he was learning all the way. And later, Timothy would become the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So this was really good on the job training. But Paul says to him in verse 10, you followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. And then he lists all of the things that happened um, he says, indeed, in verse 12, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ will be persecuted. Drop down to verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. Paul is pointing back to verse 10. You followed my teaching. You learned things from me. I was teaching 
biblical scriptural content. I was teaching truth that would be included in the canon of scripture. You were following me as I was doing that. So that is what Timothy is, is seeing, and that is what Timothy saw from Paul. Paul knew he was, he was teaching scripture. Timothy was observing that. So Paul has put in front of Timothy recent revelation. This is revelation that I have as an apostle, and you've seen it firsthand. You've heard it. You probably saw me writing some of these letters, whatever. But then look at verse 15. He says, and that from childhood. So childhood was before Timothy met Paul, right? You have known the sacred writings. What is that? That's the Old Testament. That's what came first. Which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ. You read Isaiah 53, you can't miss that you need a Savior. So Timothy had the Old Testament. His mother and his grandmother were faithful, and they put that in front of him. And Timothy also had Paul's testimony. He had Paul's current teaching, revelation that Paul received as an apostle. So it's on the heels of that that you read verse 16 that says all scripture. So these are both pieces. The New Testament, current revelation, the the Old Testament, they're all inspired by God. Every single word of it. And it's beneficial for those four things. So read the full counsel of your Bible. Because the full counsel of your Bible is what is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. Teaching is what is right. Rebuking is what is not right. Correcting is how to get right. And training is how to stay right. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. What's right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right. All of Scripture is useful for that. So read Obadiah. Read Nahum. Read Second Chronicles. Read First Samuel. I'm going to be preaching on that in a couple Sunday nights from now. Because it's in all of those things that you see this. You will rob yourself of the full riches of Scripture if you don't take in the full counsel of Scripture. A formal reading plan helps you do that. Whether it's one that takes you through the Bible in a year or takes you through the Bible in three and a half years, it doesn't matter. Get the full counsel of Scripture so that you can say that over the course of your life you know what is in the Bible. So when you turn to a passage in the Bible on some Sunday morning when they say turn to this chapter over the course of time you'll know what's there you know why it's there get the full counsel of scripture and that relates to your reading plan when you're thinking about what am I going to read from my Bible reading plan what am I going to do in my time of reading in the morning well I need to do something in such a way that's going to give me the full counsel of scripture because I do not want to rob myself of that and so there is benefit in reading Leviticus and there is benefit in reading Luke They go the same way. Last thing I want to put in front of you is remember God's purpose in genealogies and records. You know, there are genealogies in lots of places in your Old Testament. You don't have to go very far before you get one. You start in the the very first in the chapter one, and you don't have to take very long before you get to a genealogy. And you think, well, whatever, these are names, these are people, they don't matter, whatever. But recognize God's purpose in these. I'm going to put a couple in front of you. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. And after that, we're going to turn to Luke's record of the genealogy of Jesus. Notice in Matthew chapter 1, which direction is the genealogy going? 
Is it going from old to new or new to old? Old to new. We're moving towards Christ. Okay? That's really good. Somewhere in the middle you find David, Solomon, and all those guys. Now let's jump over to Luke chapter 3. While you're turning there, take my next time out. By the way, Matthew's gospel has the focus on Joseph. So the angel appears to Joseph in a vision. The angel gives instruction to Joseph. You've got to leave. You've got to go to Egypt. All of those things. Luke's gospel, the focus is not on Joseph. The focus is on Mary. Let's go to Luke's gospel. Let's start in verse 23. Which way is this genealogy going? Is it going from old to new or from new to old? It's going from new to old, right? You see it's going backwards because you work your way forward in the passage and eventually down there somewhere you'll get to David. So what is happening here is that Luke and Matthew have two very different objectives that that serve the same purpose. Matthew is writing to a very Jewish audience, and he wants to convince his audience that Jesus has the right to be king, that he has the legal family line to be the king. And so he starts with David, and he shows you that Jesus is a descendant of David. Luke has another purpose. Luke is a doctor. Luke is writing to help us understand that Jesus is a blood relative of David. Obviously, you can't get to a blood relative of Jesus, of David, from Matthew's side because Matthew tells us the, the, the history of men that come before Jesus. And we know that Jesus, uh, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Luke takes care of that, and he helps us understand, if you read it backwards, that you go from Mary to her generation above her, and then you go to all the men that come before that. You read in Luke 3.23, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Jewish genealogies are recorded through the fathers, and Luke works backwards from Mary through her father all the way back to Adam. So what you have here is the bloodline that goes from Mary all the way back to Adam. And if you look in the middle of Mary's, or Luke's genealogy, you'll see the same people are mentioned as are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. What you have here is you have David, and then you have two children that David had by Bathsheba. One was Solomon, and one was Nathan. Joseph is in the family line of Solomon. Forward, you get to, you get to Joseph from Solomon. If you start with Nathan, you get to Mary's father. So Luke is interested in showing you the blood relative, the, the, the blood relation that Jesus has to David. Matthew is intended in showing you the legal right that Jesus has. So is it important that you memorize every name? No, that's not. They are inspired. It's important. But it's important for you to understand what God is doing with this. He's helping you understand that Jesus has the legal right to be king, and Jesus has the blood right to be king. There are other genealogies that have significance that are important for us. In your Bible reading plan, and you get to First Chronicles, and you go, oh, man, I've got like four days of names to read. What is the deal here? This is really important. Um, is every name important? No. What's important is when Chronicles were written. 
If you read 1 Kings, you'll notice that there's a story about all the kings of the northern kingdom and the kings of the southern kingdom, and they go back and forth, and they move left to right, and everything's great. When you read the Chronicles, you read that there's lots of kings mentioned, but they're all from Judah. The reason why is because Chronicles was written after the exile. And so there's all this genealogy, there's all this evidence, there's all these family names, there's all this discussion of the tribes. And the reason why is because God wants to show Israel, I am still committed to funding and by sourcing the Messiah through Judah. I want you to understand, I want everybody who comes after you to understand that, that who they are in the tribe of Judah survived through the exile. Because most of the people were not who returned were not alive prior to the exile. They were gone for 70 years. There were a few who came back, and, but most of them were born there and they returned. So they really didn't have the land. They didn't have the history. And God is going to great lengths to tell them, I am still faithful to my promise that I'm going to bring a Messiah from the throne of David. And you people need to know how that got here. So I'm going to give you this massive list of names. There's no doubt. So when we read our Bibles, we need to see what God is doing there. Remember that this was written was written to the people of Israel so they could know what they have. They still have the Messiah. He's coming. So those are some principles to use when you're reading your Bible. You're on your reading plan and you get to a genealogy. Don't just go, oh, I'll read the first name and I'll read the last name and call it good. Do you have to memorize every name? No, you don't have to memorize every name. But know what's going on in those. Read your genealogy in, in Genesis chapter 5 and understand that God is telling you how old the earth is when you read that. It tells you about Adam and how old he was when he had his son and how old that son was when he had his son. And you can go through 10 generations and you find out that the flood came 1,656 years after Adam was put on this earth. You can move forward from that and you find out this world is really about 6,000 years old give or take. It's not six trillion years. Or When I was in college, it was four billion years, and now it's about 20 billion years. So somewhere in the last 40 years, you've gained about 16 billion years. So somehow that doesn't work. But here's where God shows you. Now, this is what I did. This is how you can know how old this world is. And that's not so that you can say, well, here's the argument. That is so you can know that God's word is true. You can know that God says that there was a generation and there was another generation and a generation. You can know exactly how it is that we got here. So genealogies are very, very helpful. And again, the exact content is one thing, but what God is doing and what he's communicating with it is another. So those are principles I hope that are helpful in teaching you how to use self-control when you read your Bible. I hope that does, what that does is that gives you a richer time in God's word. I take take away these things that are going to help you and uh, eventually that will work its way into the benefits of that will be in your home the benefits of that will be right here in this church and our testimony for the world around us let's pray Lord thank you for these men thank you for your, your goodness to save them and to bring them here thank you for saving me Lord we need your help when we read your word I pray that you would help us to, to use every means of grace you've given to us that when we have our Bibles open, you would reveal yourself to us and you would grant us the grace we need to have self-control. Lord, teach us through your word so that a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now, we understand you, we love you, we obey you, we are more faithful to you than we are today. Lord, so that the gospel can go forth clearly and the world can know how worthy you are of our worship. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.